Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. I've had to title the message today, I would title it this, how do you respond to failure? How do you respond when you, you, you jack it up and you, you mess it up? Reality is, every person in this room has blown it. You've said things, you've done things, and you look back and you go, man, I regret that. From a golfing terminology, it's like, oh God, I wish I had a mulligan there to hit that stroke again. I wish I had a do-over. Am I speaking to this room in here this morning? Proverbs 24, 16 says, the godly may trip seven times, the godly, but they will get up again. But one failure is enough to overthrow the wicked. How you and I handle failure, the blunders and the mistakes of our lives, how we handle that can be the difference between living a life of victory or living a life of defeat, living a life of staying in stable misery. It's not have I blown it or will I blow it again? But what will I do with it once I do? And I would say this, if you're not making some mistakes and if you're not experiencing some failure in your life, I would tell you, you're not taking any risk. You're playing it safe. Doers make mistakes. I remember growing up as a little young guy, and I played Little League, and I played Babe Ruth, and I played high school, and ended up playing four years of college ball. I remember when I signed to play professional baseball. It was the third game of the season. I was coming out of the bullpen, and they're like, you're in. My first game of pro ball. I couldn't wait. And I'll never forget, he brought me into a situation, fifth inning, bases loaded, nobody out. He said, go get them. I do my warm-up pitches, get through with the warm-up tosses. All right, I got bases loaded, nobody out. We got to get after it. I come to the set position. I start my wind-up where I break my hands. All of a sudden, when I hit there, bam, I drop the stinking ball. I never dropped the ball in Babe Ruth High School, college. I'd never dropped the ball and I dropped it. The umpire calls a balk. The man on third goes home. The man on second goes to third, first to second. And here we are. A mistake is valuable in our life. A mistake is valuable in our life if we, one, recognize it. I couldn't ignore that one there. It was like, what a huge mistake. I, I just dropped the stinking ball. And you've had moments in your life where you've dropped the ball. You got to recognize it. I, I see it for what it is. Two, you got to admit it. Uh, I, I got to admit what I did. I got to own my part in it. And when I do that from a spiritual standpoint, then I'm able to repent. But I'm like, I, I, I own it. I, I did it. The third thing is, when you make a mistake, you can't personalize it. By that statement, what I mean is this: when you make a mistake, you can't conclude. I am a failure. You have to make the conclusion, I made a failing mistake. 
A lot of times people, when they fail or make a mistake, they allow that to become their identity. It paralyzes them. Another thing when you make a failure, it's valuable if you refuse to deflect and blame everybody else for your mistake. Man, if I would have just had a little bit more rosin on my hand, maybe if I could have used that pine tar like hitters use, I wouldn't have done that. You've got to refuse to make uh, to, to deflect and blame other people for your mistakes. So easy to get there, Adam. I mean, the fallen world in which we live, it's like just blame. What else? It's valuable if you learn from it. It's like I, I, I just learned something there. I'm going to redeem that for good, and I'm going to allow that failure or mistake in my life not to make me bitter, but it's going to make me better. I never surrender to failure. And then the thing is, you've got to let it go and realize God's nailed all my junk failures, all your junk and failures to the cross. I got to let it go and I got to pick the ball back up and get in the game. I shared the illustration in the first service, and one of my buddies, Craig, goes, So, what happened? I said, well, I had men on second and third, nobody out. I punched the next guy out, got a pop-up and a ground out, and I was done with the inning. And so I jogged back in. My manager looked at me, and he goes, you were so stinking tight, dude. I don't even know if you were breathing. And I said, you're probably right. (laughs) He said, now, you got another inning. Go get them. But you've got to pick the ball back up. And you've had things in your life, whether it's a a difficulty in a relationship, maybe that even led to divorce, some type of catastrophic moment, or at least you thought it was. And if you're not careful, you can allow your failure to become final that becomes fatal. The one thing I knew was I want to play the game. I didn't show up to drop the ball, but I dropped the ball, but I'm here to play the game. I want to be in the game. I want to be a part of the game. That's the way it is in life. Let me say this to you. When you experience a failure in your life, repentance is not me trying to fix me, save me, and change me. I tried that for a long time. That didn't work. True biblical repentance is owning the fact that you're jacked up, you're messed up, admitting to God I see me the way I truly am, and I'm starting to see you, and I don't have the strength to do it. And God will invite us at that moment of failure to step into him, to meet him, to trust him, and then to get to a place where the resolve of our heart can be, hey, I need you. I confess my dependence on you. I don't want to try to take another step without you. I can't fix myself, save myself, heal myself. If you'll do it, God, I'll I'll yield to you. That's where we're going to go in this message. I'm giving you principle out of the gate. We'll get there in the text today. Luke chapter 22 and verse 8. These are the last 24 hours, probably even the last 18, 20 hours of Jesus' earthly life. Tells Peter and John, y'all go ahead and prepare Passover for us. Passover was the Jewish celebration that the uh, people of Israel 
would, 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 would pause and remember that God had delivered them from Egyptian captivity. It was that time that they would pause at Passover and remember the goodness of God and the grace of God and how God had freed them from captivity in Egypt. And so what God told them on that first night of Passover, if you go back and study, God was sending plagues to Pharaoh and to all the people uh, within uh, in Egypt at that time and all these people that were uh, anti-God, if you will. And God told the Israelites, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a spotless, pure, unblemished lamb. And I want you to take the blood from that lamb. And I want you to take that blood and apply it to the doorpost of your home. And when this death angel sweeps over, part of the plague, I'm going to wipe out so much of humanity. When the death angel sweep, uh, comes by and sees the blood on the doorpost, it will pass over that home. So the Israelites experienced freedom and salvation and deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the ultimate, perfect Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world by spilling his blood on Calvary's cross. Guys, I, I want to do this last Passover with you. Passover was an annual celebration for the Jews. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. We're going to gather together and we're going to remember the faithfulness of God. Verse 14, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. When Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten and Jesus said, this cup represents my blood being poured out that's going to initiate the new covenant. This bread represents my body. When we encourage the believers and the, the children of God, those who have faith in Christ, who have repented and turned from their sin and placed their faith and confidence in Christ, at the end of every service, you will hear us say, we're going to enter into a time of prayer, more worship, but yet communion. What are we doing? We're going all the way back to the Passover and to that Passover feast that Jesus had with the disciples. And so when we take communion as a believer and follower of Christ, what we're saying is this wafer right here, the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ that carried my sin debt to Calvary's tree. Lord, I never want to forget my sin. All of the wretched just filth in my life. So when we receive communion, he takes it with the disciples and he says, do it in remembrance of me. And we're pausing to say, your body carried my sin. Then we take the cup and we peel it back and we digest the juice. And what we're saying is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all my sin. Not only does his body carry my sin, but his blood 
cleanses me. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So we encourage you week after week when you come in here to worship, hey, please, during this time, press into the Lord. Spend some time in communion. Spend some time leaning in. Spend some time in gratitude. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you would carry my sin. Thank you that you would shed your blood. Thank you that you would die a criminal's death. Thank you that you've defeated death, hell, and the grave. I want to remember, I never want to forget how good you are. The first ever Passover with the disciples that's about to inaugurate the new covenant takes place. Things happen and then the conversation shifts. Picking up in verse 31, Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says, Simon, Simon. That was the name that he went by before he met the Lord. That was his given birth name, Simon. Simon. Satan has asked, some translations say, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Simon, Satan has come to me and he wants to take you out of the game. He wants to wreck your world. He wants to rock your world. Jesus says, but I've pleaded in prayer that your faith should not fail you. Simon, I'm praying for you that you don't hijack your faith. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm even ready to die with you. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. So here Jesus is, God in flesh, master of all. He looks at Peter and he says, uh, uh, Peter, tonight, let me tell you what's going down. You're going to experience failure. Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter, Satan is wanting to take you out of the game so that you're ineffective and you don't ante up. Do you, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? Can I tell you this morning, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, Satan wants to take you out of the game. Satan wants to take you down. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to wreck your life, wreck your world, create so much collateral damage, it's not even funny. The enemy wants to take me out. I want to take you down. He's going down. He wants to take other people with it. We pick up the text where Jesus then came to the Mount of Olives that is known as Gethsemane. He leaves the upper room. He makes his way across the Kidron Valley, it's called in biblical times, and it's still even there. He goes through this valley. The Temple Mount is here, the temple, and he makes his way over to the Mount of Olives and to Gethsemane. Gethsemane was known as the wine press, the olive press. It was known as a place where they would squeeze those and crush those olives and grapes to get the juice from them. Jesus has come to a place of crushing. He knelt down, began to pray. His disciples had followed him. And Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He had just passed the cup hours before. 
This represents my blood. Jesus is on his face praying to the Father, and he says, Father, if it if it be your will, would you remove this cup of suffering? Would you remove this bloodshed? Would you remove this humiliation? Would you remove this crucifixion? Father, if it be your will, is there another way to get it done? I'm not going to take a shortcut. Would you remove this cup from me if it's your will? But not my will, your will be done. And being in agony, he prays. Jesus is yielding to and committed to and surrendered to the Father's will. And what Jesus declares is, Father, I just want you to know that I'm here to do what you want me to do. I'm here to do it the way you want it done. Lord, I know what stands before me, Father God. I know there's a lot of turmoil, and I know it's going to be chaotic. And I'm committed to fulfill your purpose. I'm here to succeed your plan. What Jesus was basically saying in his prayer is, I'm not going to drop the ball. I'm on mission. I'm on assignment. But if there's any other way, Lord, show me. Then Judas enters the garden. Verse 47 says, while Jesus was speaking, behold, a crowd came. Judas, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the of the 12 that had been with Jesus for three years. He had been walking with Jesus. He had seen the miracles from water to wine and dead people being raised. And he had heard this incredible, profound teaching from Master Jesus. He he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Here's the question. How will Judas handle his failure? What's he going to do? He turns his back on Jesus. He betrays Jesus. He sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, your declaration and your why is exposed. You would rather have money than have Jesus. You're selling me out. You just had this last communion, this supper with me. You've been with me and you're selling. Did you come to betray me? You ever been betrayed? You ever been stabbed in the back by people that you thought loved you, cared about you? Matthew 27 picks it up and says, Judas who had betrayed Jesus, felt remorse and said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he went out and he hanged himself. Remorse implies guilt. Look at what I did. Shame. Look at who I am. He's got this regret. He's got this remorse. He doesn't have repentance. He allowed his failure to become final. He commits suicide. He hangs himself. It's like, Judah, stop. Why did you show up at church? Why did you hang out with Jesus? What was your wine, dude? You went through the motions. What was you hiding? What was you covering? Why were you showing up anyway? And the Lord has a way, Luke, to allow our why to be exposed. Why are you doing it? What's most important? Am I really your Lord? Am I really your master? Judas, why did you allow your 
failure to become final. It didn't have to end this way, but you quit. You just threw the stinking towel in and you quit. And it's hard when we go through the challenges of life. And we get knocked down sometimes and we get tired at times and the want to to just get up again. It's like, well, if I do it, I'm going to get my lunch handed to me again. And, 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 and some people, they stop living at the age of 28. And they might not die until they're 70, but they quit. They just quit living. They started sedating and medicating and doing whatever. It's like, why'd you quit? There's still a game. Get back in there. Come on. Pick the ball up. You can do it. God is for you. God loves you. If God had a wallet, your picture would be in it. He, he's for you. Come on. Don't quit. Luke twenty two fifty four says they arrested Jesus. Judas betrays him with a kiss. He takes the money, hangs himself. Now Jesus is arrested. They they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas's place is right outside of the upper room. They're back on this side by now. And this unrighteous trial starts. They didn't do it according to protocol. They're trying to just figure out everything they can to trap and kill Jesus as quick as they can. The trial starts, and don't miss verse 54. It says, but Peter was following at a distance. The same one that said, I'll die, I'll go to prison, whatever it takes. Now the heat has gotten turned up, John. The heat is turned up, and he's like, hmm. I don't know if I want to be a part of that right now. I'm going to keep my distance. John 18, verse 18 says, Because it was cold, the servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and Peter, instead of being with Jesus, was hanging around the charcoal fire, keeping himself warm. About that time, a servant girl looked and said, That man right there? Pointing at Peter, he was with Jesus, but Peter denied it. Woman, I, I don't know him. A little later, another person saw him and said, yep, he's one of them too. But some of the biggest buts in Scripture are right here in John, but Peter denied it. Man, I'm not. Another man said, this man was with Jesus. Look at him. He's a Galilean too. But Peter denied it. And while Peter was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times and then Peter went out 
and went away and he wept bitterly. Stop. I want you to process this. This is crucial. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to deny me. I'm praying that your faith will not fail you. And then the rooster crows. When Jesus looks at Peter, this is a theology right here that you've got to wrap your mind and your heart around. When Jesus looks at Peter, what was the face and eyes of Jesus? If your Jesus is a cosmic sheriff ticked off at the world and can't wait to punish you and arrest you, you've got theological issues. When Jesus looks at Peter, what was his face? About 20 years ago, I remember we had this snowstorm and some icy conditions. And at that time, we had Rachel, Benji, and Jesse, and they had gone out. They were playing around, and they come back in, and Barb is making hot chocolate on the stove. And we had told Jesse and told Jesse and told Jesse, do not touch that stove. Don't touch it, son. It's hot. Don't touch it. It'll fry your hand. Don't do it. Barb takes that hot chocolate off. She begins to pour hot chocolate for the kids. And all of a sudden, about the time before I can say anything, bam, the hand is on the stove. He starts screaming. He starts yelling. I walk over. He turns his hand over. The little skin on his hand was singed so bad it started crumbling and falling off. And I remember I looked at him. I looked at him. And I didn't look at him like, you little sinner. You stinking idiot and fool. My eyes were not eyes of anger. Oh, God. I knew what was going to happen. Compassion. It wasn't like, figure it out. You're four. If you're big enough to touch the stinking stove, find your own cure. When you look at the eyes of Jesus, Peter remembered. Peter wept. Peter remembered. Peter wept. You remember? I remember. Remember unplugging from me and trying to do it on your own? I, I, I remember. Remember covering up your stuff and lying about your reality? You, you remember the pain? I, I remember. And the crazy thing is, Barbara and I were there back in 2018 of January. Right outside of Caiaphas's palace, there's a monument and a church. And on top of that church is a rooster. It's almost like instead of putting a cross and instead of putting a, a mark of redemption, they put a stinking rooster on top of the church. It's like, that's where he failed. And at your point of greatest failure, what animal best describes who you are? Tim, when you were living in sin and just saturated in sin, 
I was a stinking python. I would choke the life out of you to get whatever pleasure I wanted. I would use you, abuse you. I was pondering that going, you remember what animal you were? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I would use people and abuse people, and I didn't honor people, Ward. You were a stinking python. You were a snake, wouldn't you? I always send Teresa my notes. She uploads all this stuff where you guys can have it on Sunday. I said, hey, you, you got the rooster? And, oh, I got it. I said, what did you think? She said, I was a wolf in sheep's clothing. I said, talk to me. Oh, I would walk in and I had this sheep's clothing on and I could sing and do whatever and put on the face, but if you took my garment off, I was a stinking wolf. My heart went for the Lord. I'm like, hours later, Jesus is led down the Via Della Rosa. Hours later, Jesus will go through the garrison room and Gabbatha, the place of stony pavement. He's going to be beaten with whips and the crown of thorns. He'll be led to Golgotha where he's going to die a criminal's death. He's going to be crucified. It's going to be brutal. The disciples are going to be heartbroken. They're going to throw Jesus' body in a borrowed tomb. And then, 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 I ask the question, hey, 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 Peter, how are you going to respond to your failure? What are you going to do with your mistake? What are you going to do with your denouncing of Jesus and denying Jesus? Are you going to quit? You're going to throw the towel in, Peter? Are you going to do like your bro Judas and go hang yourself? What are you going to do? How are you going to handle your failure? Do you know that people all the time are looking at us to see how we handle tension and failure and things in our life? Oh, you... You're a child of God. Let's see if there's any difference in you on how you handle failure and mishap and stuff. Oh, you got a kingdom perspective? Peter, what are you going to do? You know what he does? He runs back home. I'm going to go back home. Do you know that it is 60 miles from Jerusalem all the way back up to Tiberias to the lake and the Sea of Galilee, and Peter goes, going home. I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to go back and do what I was doing before I met him. I'm just going home. And all these other disciples go back home with him. Do you know that we make decisions and choices every day? that have so much influence and impact on the people around us. John 21, Simon Peter, some of the other disciples, they were all together, Sea of Galilee. Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, yeah, we'll just go with you. I mean, you're the ringleader. you got the voice. You're the alpha male, dude. I mean, if you're going that way, we'll, we'll, we'll just go with you. They go fishing. You can read the entire story, but you pick it up in verse 9. And it says, when they got back on land, they saw a charcoal fire. Charcoal fire already prepared. Fish were on it. Bread was on it. Charcoal fire. 
I wonder what the aroma did to awaken the memories inside of Peter. There's things that happen in our life. There's songs that we can hear that take us back to a place in time and we go, oh man, I was so messed up and high and jacked up at that time. The smell. Barb made chili yesterday and we were hanging out. Rachel comes over, our oldest daughter, and as soon as she walks into the house, oh, you got chili, mom. She goes, mom, did you make that apple cake that you made? I can smell it. There's smells in our lives, like for Peter, that took him back. There's songs, there's movies, there's moments, there's things for us that take us back. You remember? Yeah. Jesus said, come and have breakfast, guys. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, what about all the other guys that were there? Who's the ringleader? Simon Peter. Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agape. Do you unconditionally, sacrificially, you're willing to lay down your life? Do you love me, Peter? More than these. He's talking about the other disciples. He's pointing at the stinking fish. There was a miraculous catch, 153 fish Jesus allowed to get in the net. Do you love me more than going back fishing? You love me more than baseball cash? You love me more than money? You love me more than hedonistic pleasure? You love me more than these? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. The word Peter uses is phileo. Lord, I, I, I phileo you. I brotherly love you. I, I den- I've denounced you. How can I ever say I agape you? I phileo you. Jesus said, then if you do, go tend my lambs. Go take care of the people. I told you way back that you would not be fishing for fish. You'd be fishing for people. You would be taking care of these people, these sheep of mine that belong to me, these Lost sheep of Israel that are trying to figure it out, go tend my lambs. Jesus looks at him a second time and says, do you agape? Peter says, phileo. He says, then, if you even phileo me, go shepherd my sheep, go take care of people, go back to what I called you to be, not your fear-based narrative that drove you back to Tiberias. Third time, Jesus says, third time, Jesus says, don't miss it. Peter, do you even phileo me? Jesus drops the wording. Do you even brotherly love me, Peter? Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time. You know what Jesus is saying to him? Hey, look at me. Get back in the game. The game's not over. Jesus never said failure disqualifies you, Peter. You're done. You're off the team. He never said failure. It's final, dude. You're done. Go do something else. He never, he never, he never emphasized Peter's failure and denial. And how we guilt people and shame people based on their failure. Look at you. 
just a stinking druggie. You're a con artist. You're a manipulator. You're a schemer. And God goes, do you believe what I believe about you? Do you believe that I am for you? Do you believe I love you? Do you believe I can do exceedingly abundantly above anything you can ask or think? Do you believe that I believe in you? Will you believe what I believe about you? If you've got a label on a person right now, whoever it might be in your life, yank it off of them. The truest thing about them is they're loved by God. The truest thing about them is God wants them back in the game. The truest thing about them is that God wants them to reach down, pick up the ball, and say, come on, I'm going to use you. How do you know that, Tim? Because the Bible is saturated with stories of God working in the lives of a bunch of screw-ups and mess-ups. The Bible is saturated with stories of all these people that get it wrong, that don't live up to their calling, who promise, next time I'll do it right, and they jack it up again. The Bible's full of those stories. So you're saying David's got that portfolio? You're, you're saying Abraham too? Yeah. Yeah, he decided that he would just have sex with Hagar and just, well, Sarah can't do anything for me. So that was a failure. What are you going to do? I'm going to get back in the game, pick up the ball. I'm, I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to own it. I'm, 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 I'm going to get back in the game. Hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. Okay, Peter, Simon, I want you all to head back to Jerusalem. I know you ain't got the latest pair of Nikes or your cool hocus that you're wearing, bro, but that's another 60 miles to go back to the place that I never told you to leave in the first place. Go on back to Jerusalem. Go back to the upper room. Go back to where I left you. You came back to what you knew. I'm going to take you back to the assignment and call that I have on your life. So they go back. It's been, by now, some 35, 40 days. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the day of Pentecost, all of the believers were still there in Jerusalem, meeting together in one place. Suddenly there came a... This violent Russian wind from heaven, it filled the whole house where they were sitting and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What you going to do? I told you it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and he shouted out to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. What did Jesus pray? That your faith will not fail you. Jesus didn't pray. I'm praying that you won't make a mistake and that you'll live scared and you won't take any risk, Peter. I'm praying that your faith, your faith took a hit. You denied me. Your faith took a blow. You didn't stand up. But I'm praying that your faith will not fail. You. I'm praying that your faith in me and your confidence in me and your trust in me, I'm praying it won't fail you, Peter. 
Peter stands up starting in verse 14. He says, men of Israel, y'all listen to me. Let me tell y'all about Jesus. And he begins to share. Joel and other prophets prophesied about his coming. We know the we know the teachings of the Old Testament scripture. Let me tell you what he did. He came on the scene. He was who he said he was. He lived a perfect life. He entered into his public ministry at around the age of 30 for three years. Let me tell you how he walked, what he talked. Let me tell you what he did. Let me tell you why he went to the cross to die a criminal's death because he was not only the son of God and the son of man, but he was the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. You guys... You've tried to reduce who he is. You've tried to ignore who he is. And Peter knows he even denied who he was. But now I know who he is. He met me in my failure. And he's not done with me. And he's not done with you. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Get your heart right. Repent. Turn from you. Turn from your sin. And get back in the game. Peter, how'd you handle that failure? I repented of it. I wept. I saw myself for what I really was apart from Christ. I got back in the game. The Holy Spirit empowered me. Man, I was living a life forgiven. I was living a life of passion and purpose and courage. You were? Yes. When I was scared and when I lied and when I denied, that's not who God made me to be. That was fear that I had empowered for a short period of time, calling the shots. But I don't live a fear-based narrative. My Savior prayed, my faith wouldn't fail me. My faith is in him. I'm back in the game. And he was back in the game. You in the game today? You in it? Or did you walk in here today still empowering failures of yesterday? Maybe you went through a divorce, maybe you went through a difficulty, whatever it was, but you look back and you go, I'm still a slave to the failure. Why? Don't have to define you. I recognize it, I admit it, I don't personalize it, I'm not deflecting, I accept it, I've repented, I've embraced his grace and goodness. Back in the game. So you're not a python? No. I'm a truth proclaimer and soul awakener. That's what my father calls me. You're not a wolf, not a wolf. Not a rooster, not a rooster. And you know what I believe to be true about every person in this room, Angela, from you all the way over here toward Mama Kate, everybody in between. You know what I believe it to be true? That the best days of your life are ahead if you'll step back into the game and allow God to redeem your failure. Get back in it. Get back in it. Get back in it. Come on. We believe in you. God believes in you. No matter how jacked up it's been, as I work through things with my own family, with other people, get in the stinking game. Don't allow your failure to become final, to become fatal. Don't look at that and go, that's just who I am. No, it's a lie from hell. It's what I did, but it's not who I am. I am who God says I am. I got to have you.